right. Well, I'm sitting down with Gary Smith. Hello, Professor Smith. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you. And I've got a guest host today here, Mr. R. Scott Barnes, who is uh, a band director at Washington Junior High out in Joliet. Hello, Scott. How you doing, Dad? Thanks Good. for having me here as well. Thanks for being there, and thanks for setting us up with Professor Smith. And Professor Smith, we're uh, we're here to talk a little bit about band. And uh, normally, I start these things off with where you came from, what your career went to, and everything. But sometimes I forget to get to some questions that I really want to know. And uh, I kind of want to start with that first. And I read in an instrument uh, instrumentalist article, you said ten percent of transcriptions actually do work for band. And I'm getting, <laughs> so could we just dig right into that real quick? And are there any transcriptions that you might want to throw out there that in your career you can think of that worked very, very well? Oh, oh my God. There really are a lot. But a lot of uh, transcriptions really don't work. You know, the orchestral uh, uh, the orchestral style is not captured in transcriptions. I know that uh, very little Brahms works. Uh, a lot of Strauss, uh, a lot of Strauss things work, you know, Einhild and Lieben, Dylan Spiegel, things like that. Um, and one of my favorite transcriptions uh, uh, is Mark Heinsley. He wrote, he wrote several, but pictures at an exhibition is a really Absolutely. good one. And uh, it works well, and you can play parts of it or you can play all of it. And, of course, you got your typical kinds of transcriptions, Malcolm Arnold. For example, all his things that John Painter transcribed, those are all good, you know, the dances and so forth. And, and of course, like the old timers, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, Henry Fillmore and Paul Yoder and Alfred Reed and the, all their transcriptions are good because they knew how to score. Frank Erickson, I mean, these were master orchestrators and not only with original works, but when they transcribe things, uh, um, Paul Lavender, his, he's probably one of the best, uh, transcribers I know. And he tends to do more advanced type literature. That's much more challenging, but I mean, you know, the military bands play a lot of his things, of course. And, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long list and I think it's just a matter of selecting pieces that fit your band and trying to avoid, um, uh, transcriptions that, that really, don't lend itself to the wind band medium, but they're and only sound good as an orchestral thing. Of course, you know that the whole suites, you know, originally written for band, been transcribed for orchestra, so that's in reverse, you know. And uh, but uh, it's interesting to see. Uh, Holst was one of the first people who really influenced a lot of his peers, a lot of his composers, to write original works for band because. You know, in the early 1900s, uh, there was very little written original works for bands, and so all we had was transcriptions, and that's why we have so many of them. And a lot of the old ones from that those those days are still good. I know Mark Hinesley's son still uh, sells transcriptions all over the world uh, that his father did, and like I say, some of those things work and some of them don't. Um, El Salon, Mexico is another good one. It's interesting, though, there's a difference in philosophy of transcribers. Some, one philosophy, like, uh, uh, like Mark Heinsley, tried to make the parts interesting, so he would change the original orchestrations and solos and so forth to give everybody more interesting parts, where someone like uh, Guy Duker tried to keep as much of the original or instrumentation as possible, uh, and then only altered things when it was necessary. So, 
this is you're talking about something we can go on for hours you know (laughs) and i didn't mean to come out right out of the gate with some heavy hitter thing like that but Mm -hmm. on the other hand i I look at that when when i do these and i'm hoping to help some other it's interesting because you know i my background when i went to college we it was considered that you know you play original band works you don't play transcriptions and so when i came to illinois uh you know the, the illinois band with harry Bijan played a lot of transcription and i was just I, I couldn't believe how fantastic the timbres he got with the transcriptions. And I told Dr. Bijan, teach me how to do transcriptions. And he says, well, you don't have to. You you play what you want with your band, and it's okay to play original band works. And I said, no, I, I want to learn this because I've missed out on a great medium, uh, a wealth of literature. And um, so he said, all right, so... Um, you know, we got a, we got a transcription and he started showing me all the differences in interpreting, uh, transcriptions over, you know, original band work. And so he was really a mentor for me and, in learning how to deal with transcriptions. And so I think almost every concert I did, I always, I always would have at least one transcription. What do you think? the biggest takeaway that you got from Dr. Bijan as far as how to make those. I mean, obviously there's a plethora of things, but specifically you talked about how, how well he made those transcriptions work. So, you know, he, first of all, he, he, he was a maestro. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, I mean, you realize that he conducted the Detroit symphony when they were on strike and got a standing ovation. in One of the Dvorak symphonies. And I brought one time I brought Louis Sudler, who is, the man who brought Schulte to Chicago mm-hmm. uh, to one of Bijan's concerts. And we're sitting in the balcony, and about 10 minutes into the concert, he taps me on the shoulder. He says, he's a maestro. I go, he, you know, he was just blown away because he had such natural instincts. But he was a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, this man knew more about music history than the musicologist. He knew more music theory than our theory and composition teachers. He know. knew all the literature, including the literature that he wouldn't play because he tended not to be uh, impressed with too many things that are going on in the contemporary world. But he still was. But when he did a contemporary piece, he did it real well. And uh, I mean, this man could solfege at sight 12 tone rows, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think I went almost the, my entire career with him, I went to almost every rehearsal he had because. He he had the instincts and the ear, and the. I remember one time reading an article about the role of the conductor, you know, by all the maestros, and the one that stuck in my mind is that um, the role of the conductor is to try to get the ensemble to reproduce what's in your head. And if you don't have the music in your head, you know, you do this either through gestures or and or talking, you know. And that's what Bijan, Bijan had the music in his head. And he, so he had a sound he wanted. It was the Illinois band sound, his Illinois band sound. And so everything he did and said and everything he tried to accomplish was to get the ensemble to reproduce what was in his head. And that's what I learned from him. You know, when I would, would ask him about things like temples and all, he says, you know, you have instincts, use them when it feels right, when it sounds right. And so I think that that's the most important thing I learned from him was that um, if you don't understand what it is you're trying to accomplish and, and you don't have the music in your head, then, you know, you're never going to develop a style with your ensemble that is uniquely yours. And I, I remember one time hearing Bill Belichick, you know, the coach, 
of the uh, Patriots, who's quite one of the greatest coaches of all times, one of the quotes he made one time was, um, uh, a goal without a plan is a wish. You know, and and that stuck in my mind because that sort of, you know, applies to us. And the mere fact that uh, he had a plan and he had a goal. And I don't think even a lot of the students realize just just how brilliant he was because he was very demanding. Sometimes he scared people. Uh, But, you know, and 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 so. You know, there was a difference between tension intensity. There's a big difference. And he was an intense man. And some people inter- interpret that as tension at times. But nonetheless, when when he was on, I mean, the, his ensembles were so musical that, you know, words can't describe it because uh, you had to experience it. And that's I, I learned a lot. I, I learned from him to use my ears instead of the machines and so forth. And, um, you know, and he, I learned about interpretation of marches. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the man, he, his, uh, his recordings he did of, of, of marches, American and continental marches is, is, you know, the best. And, and, and so it's funny because he, he was the kind of man that never tried to tell you what to do. You had to ask. And then he'd say, well, since you asked, and then, then he'd lay into you, see? <laughs> and so I would just come in, and I would, sometimes I'd be embarrassed. I let, This is a stupid question. He was one of these, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And, and so he was a phenomenal mentor, and he would sit with me for hours if I wanted to and, and discuss things about, well, like interpretation of articulations, which changes with the various eras of music. You know, an accent. And classical music is different than an accent in jazz and rock or contemporary music, you know. And so now, you know, the, one of my missions in life is to try to get people to understand the proper way to play accents, which in most cases is full value notes, not spaced. Right. And and but but then in, in earlier earlier transcriptions that, that it might mean to be spaced. And so it depends on the style that the in the area of the music. And those are the things I learned from him, you know. And of course, <clears throat> articulations, playing articulations uniformly in an ensemble is a lost art now, in my opinion. And, and balance is a lost art. Um, it, you know, basically most everything I hear now is notes and rhythms and nothing beyond that. Well, let's do this thing because I, I have some more things I'd like to ask about your philosophies and, and Dr. Beejan. But um, also, just in terms of your story, I think you have one of the most fascinating stories about your your upbringing and what you've done and where you're at now oh, and yeah. w- would you mind just for our listeners just kind of well, i'll just kind of do yeah. the reader's digest go, version go ahead. <laughs> it could be kind of boring uh, i i was fortunate my father had a, a band camp he found in 1949 um and it was primarily more for um marching bands and uh, we were probably in drum majors and so forth, but we also had an, a, a real live band camp that went for two weeks. So as a k- kid growing up, I was, you know, surrounded in an environment of people like, you know, Bill Valley and, and John Painter and Frank Ben Cusciuto, you know, and, and, and people like that who actually taught at our camp and they were an inspiration to me. And, and so, you know, I would, I would, listen to the recordings and so forth. And the, when I was, uh, I think, a freshman in, in high school, I grew up in Orlando. 
Uh, I listened to a recording, Fennell's first recording, um, and it was all menorah on Mercury Records. He, he released a British band, Classics, which had, you know, the whole suites and so forth, original suite and all that. And I heard that, and it's like, I'm going to be a band director. That's what did it. And, and so um, the combination of growing up in, in, a, in the summers, my father ran the camps in the summer in Indiana, and then in the winters he taught. He was a marching guy, and he taught drill, and my mother uh, taught majorette corps, and we lived in Orlando in the winters. And, and so I was fortunate to, to be uh, influenced in, in the marching world by Ohio State and Michigan, which were and Illinois, which were, you know, the Big Ten bands when I was a kid, were eons beyond anything else. And Illinois was the band mecca of the world, you know, with A.A. A. Harding. And and so I think all of us are products of our environment. And and so you don't even realize the things that influence you to get older and look back and realize, oh, my God, I'm doing this because of that and so forth. And and so I, my, I went to Butler and the reason I went to Butler is because I wanted to study with Niall Hovey, who is an amazing music educator um, and conductor and musician. Well, then the year I got there, he retired. And so we had John Colbert, which was which also, but turned out he he's the one that's, that you know influenced me to play original works for band mostly. And and so uh, at, at Butler, I got a very a very good education, and in the summers I would go help work with high school bands i used to write a lot of arrangements for marching bands and so forth and and so as a college student i i i did a lot of uh working with other bands helping other bands in their camps and so forth so as a result i got uh the top job in indiana at that time which was northside high school in fort wayne it was the largest band program in the state and um and they were already, I mean, there were state marching champions. They had an orchestra, two symphonic bands, and a humongous music program. They wanted somebody with a master's degree and five years teaching experience. But because I had done all these other things, you know, while I was in school, um, somehow I got the job, you know, and I was, they, I was surprised they even got an interview and I got the job. So I was handed, uh, a, gr- a great program. I, mean, I didn't have to build anything. Where my friends I went to school with, they had to build programs, you know. And I was kind of envious of them, you know, because they developed, you know. It's like building a, a, your own house as opposed to buying one someone else built, you know. And it was it was a wonderful experience. And um, my my uh, sort of my supervisor at Butler, you know, my that sort of guided me, who was the marching band director then said, I'd like you to go into college, so uh, I will get you some interviews. And, you know, so he got me an interview at St. Joseph College in Rensselaer, Indiana, which was a very small Catholic school. It's only a 1,000 students. And, and, and so I, and there was only like 18 people in the band. Um, and I went and interviewed it, and I just thought I was so enthralled because it, well, it's a college, and it's college. So I take the job. And my supervisor called me and said, I didn't want you to take the job. <laughs> I just wanted you to have an, inter- an interview in a college level. that says, we can get you a better job. I said, yeah, but it's my friends who built programs. I want to see if I can do that, you know. And so I was there four years. And the, all the priests, I was the only, you know, uh, non-Catholic there, only Protestant. And the priests, you know, they're like, we want a band that's better than Notre Dame, you know. 
And so we built a program with 90, we had 90 kids in it and all new instruments and all new uniforms and scholarships and things. And, and we were on national TV. Uh, back then they used to show the half times at the pro games. The Bears used to train at St. Joe College. So we had a ins to perform each year at the, the Chicago Bears at halftime. And the middle school band director there was the son of the director of bands at Indiana State. And the job opened up at Indiana State, and he called his father and told him he should, you know, look at me. And so I got that job, uh, Indiana State, which was a terrific job. A man by the name of Jim Church had an incredible marching band there. And uh, so that was my main job was to take over the marching band, be assistant director of bands, and then do the second symphonic band. So I was there four years, and I loved it so much that I had never tended on leaving because uh, I had support from athletics and the president of the school, and I had we had 280 in the marching band, and I had a the second band. I started a third band too, so that the second band would get better. That's because. Uh, uh, the concert, my concert work was equally important to me as the marching band. And so I never intended on leaving. And then one day I get a call from Guy Duker at University of Illinois. He said, uh, um, why didn't you apply for the job here? I said, well, I don't know anyone there. I don't have a doctorate, nor do I intend on getting one. And they had done a search and didn't want anybody. They had, they didn't want to hire any of them. So he said, can you be here tomorrow? <laughs> he said, grab some films and come here tomorrow. I go, well, okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's how quick it happened, you know. And I spent the day there with, in, in athletics and at the dean's office and the school of music and with students, and I showed films and all that. And they offered me a job <laughs> right there that day, you know. I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, and they said, we want you to bring the Indiana State style here. We want just to duplicate what you did in Indiana State with the arrangements that you do and the dancers and the, and the more show-type band and so forth, and, um, and drastically change. We don't want you to maintain anything that's been done before because they were unhappy with the marching band. And, and my dad was so excited because his dream, my dad's dream was always that you'd be a Big Ten band director someday because that the Big Ten bands then were, they were amazing. So I took the job, you know, and without even asking questions about salary or anything, that was a mistake. And uh, it's like, <laughs> I, I was just so excited. And so the first thing I did, I, I got a meeting with about 60 kids in the band and I brought a bunch of arrangements with me that I had done at Indiana State with uh, Alan Harney, uh, who was my arranger at Indiana State. And I said, okay, we're gonna pl- we have to pick music for the season, and we're going to play these tunes, <clears throat> and you hold up um, one finger if you really like it and you want to do it. Hold up two fingers if you say it's okay and you wouldn't mind doing it, but it doesn't blow you away. Three fingers if it's average. Four fingers if you hate it and you want you don't want to do it. So we'd play through a tune. I said, okay. And they go, one. everyone play another tune. One. I said, wait a minute. We're trying to get rid of something. You don't have to. You know, they said, no, no, you don't understand. We've never played anything like this. We like it. They liked everything. You know, we played every tune, you know. And so then, and so I had to change basically everything the band did. And I, a lot of the traditions they had, I didn't like. And the only tradition they had 
that was good was the Chief Alinawik tradition, the Native American thing, you know. So they, I was told not to mess with that, okay. you know, because people basically went out in the concession stands, halftime came back for the three and one, didn't pay attention to the band. And so that was a real challenge to begin to develop identity as that we are not just there as a backdrop for the chief. We are a marching band, and the chief is just part of our, our presentation. And so the audience was – I had a lot of interviews with the media, and they, they knew I did a quick step thing at Indiana State, which I didn't like because I could never get uniform uniform foot action, so I was hoping I didn't have to do that. Well, they're like, you're going to do the quick step, right? You're going to do the quick step. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. So I, I wrote it so that we'd feed in from behind and kind of hide the feet so that just a lot of motion, you know, and I didn't have to worry about the uniformity. And, and so the band was in such bad shape, they couldn't make it from the tunnel out into the run-on, and then they, they'd just be out of air, and they couldn't play the first note. And so I'm trying to get them in shape because if it, they just never had done anything like this. And So the first game, we came out through the tunnel, and I couldn't do the quick step, so I had to march them all the way out till they got the yard lines. Then we broke in the quick step so they didn't have to do it very long. And so as we're coming out, just to a regular cadence, the crowd started moaning because they wanted to see the quick step. And it's like, they're not going to do it. And then when we hit in, when we busted into the quick step, place erupted, of course. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, they are doing it. it I mean, they, and, and the concession people said, this is the first time ever. We didn't have any business at halftime. <laughs> they, they, no one went out, you know. And so the dean told me, I don't care if, if half the band quits. you got to change everything, you know. And so we, no one quit. Uh, this the you know the the word was out that well band's no fun anymore but this had to be done you know mm-hmm. we had to clamp down on discipline and all that so the first year I had to kind of be a tyrant they got the you know I mean it, they used to drink at the games they would skip rehearsals and I mean they were just it was a terrible situation in my estimation the way they did things and I had changed everything and so. Meanwhile, I've continued to run my summer camps for drum majors and all that. And, uh, That's the Smith Walbers yeah, Clinic for yeah, yeah. listeners. Right. You know, and, it, and we sold the campgrounds in Indiana in 1990, and I moved the camps to UVI and eventually to Eastern Illinois. And then Barry Hauser took over a year ago, and I'd simply assist him. Um, but he, we still run the camps at, at, at uh, Eastern, and then I help him out. And, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell because, you know, I think it when you're in an environment where you're around the greats, it, it kind of, a lot of stuff rubs off on you. I was always fascinated by the Ohio State Marching Band because they had matched timbres. And, and that not only had matched instruments, but they had one trombone sound, one trumpet sound. Mm-hmm. And the arrangements, they had, they had a stylistic thing where I had a style, my concept of style, I wanted to have my own. I didn't want to sound like Ohio State or Michigan, but I wanted my own sound. And uh, and so I kind of developed a way of scoring things, you know, with an emphasis more in the middle. Mellophones were a new thing, and I got them right away, and, and eventually flugelhorns too. And so the uh, the band has tended to have a, a bigger sound in the middle. And, and, and so um, I would write all piccolos to flutes, and they essentially – 
carried the melody, you know, in two octaves above trumpets or when there were trills and woodwind idioms and then one clarinet part. So even with a smaller number of woodwinds, you still heard a timbre, a woodwind timbre. Mm. And it wouldn't be like the clarinets are overbalancing the band. I mean, that wouldn't be possible. But if the clarinets and the piccolo stopped playing, you would hear a difference in the sound. And, um, and so um, Alan Horry, I brought him with me as my arranger, you know, and changed the style of the band right away to develop our own concept of sound. And same thing had to happen percussion because all this stuff was new, you know, pitch bass drums are new, ten drums were a new thing. And I had to get, you know, find ways to get money to get those instruments bought so that I could get the same sound I had in the estate, you know. And so eventually, within this, by the second year, we had pretty much established our, the, the style of sound that I was after. And I think uniquely ours, you know, so we didn't sound like any of the other Big Ten bands, um, with a great deal of emphasis on uh, stylistic articulation so that we we wouldn't we could make a real rock sound, we could make a real jazz sound, you know, style-wise. And that's why Alan Horney liked writing for us, he said, because... The band plays proper style and does justice to my arrangements. Hmm. So you talked about your arranger, Alan Horney, and I believe you'd mentioned Glenn Daum. Yeah, it's a, actually, Glenn Daum was the arranger at Indiana State when I came. Okay. And uh, and I had him, and he, he was amazing. And then he moved to the University of Texas and became the jazz band director. said, I don't want to write for marching band anymore. I almost had a heart attack because he was he's what I wanted. He had the sound I wanted. He says, but I have a student who writes just like me. You won't be able to tell the difference. And that was Alan Harney. And so so he started writing for me while I was in Indiana State. So when I came to Illinois, I had both Glenn Dom and Alan Horney arrangements with me. You know, I used to arrange my own music you know, before up to that point. But when I came to Illinois and I heard those guys, I said, I want the best. And it's not me, you know. It's those guys. I can't arrange like that. And so I quit arranging and and. Uh, had had them do all of it, and and of course the uh, the Illinois band loved it. You know the the music and the arrangements these guys wrote. Oh, absolutely! I mean the days that you as I'm an alumnus of your band, um, and the days that you brought in Mr. Horney to work his arrangements yeah. <laughs> for some of our our absolute favorite music yeah. rehearsals because he would yeah just when he walk in everybody cheer that because he was he was <laughs> for really, about five minutes I yeah mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he, he got such great things out of us. Yeah, yeah, he did, and and he he was not a fan of marching bands, but he liked ours. Mm-hmm. And and as soon as I retired, he stopped arranging. Then, so you talked about you, the sound you wanted, mm-hmm. um, and people like Glenn Down and Mr. Horney being able to do it for it. Was it you being influenced by what you heard them do, or was it something where you're kind of instructing them? This is what I'm looking well, for, and they were able to provide that. This, it. It's a sound I couldn't get with my band at St. Joe because it was too small. Mm-hmm. And and so when I came to Indiana State, when I had all of a sudden I had a big band, and I liked the way they scored, uh, which was, but it's not just having it scored. They were scoring the way, the way I wanted the sound, but it was getting the band, the instrumentation to match up and the timbres and the style and so forth. So I changed the way the band played and everything, uh, but their their arrangements fit. They wrote, you know, with a big middle and so forth, mm-hmm. you know, and and of course then I got the drum corps kids involved to help me build a drum line, and so 
um, it was a combination of them scoring the way I wanted and me being able to got the instrumentation to fit that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I came to Illinois, I couldn't get it right away because the band was half woodwinds. You know, it was hardly any brass in the band. And um, so I had to change completely the instrumentation. And so what did it is we did a we did an exhibition for the marching festival, which the marching line had never done. Really? Yeah. And the kids were scared to death because they said, you know, well, these bands, they work on one show a year. And here we do a different show every weekend. And we're going to get in front of those kids of the great bands from Illinois. They said, yeah, we're going to do it. And so we did a Gershwin show. And um, we, I staged it with a pretty simple drill, and, and Horny wrote all the music, beautiful stuff on heart. And we, the band brought the house down. Well, then kids lined up. I mean, we, we just, the high school kids just started pouring in to audition. And by the second year, you know, we, there, was, there was only five music majors in the whole band. And the second year, we had 90. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and so that helped. We got a bunch of them. And they, the school music asked me, do you want to make it a requirement, music ed? And I said, no, I want, I don't want anybody in there and doesn't want to be in it. And I want to make it so it's something people want to do. And, and so by the, and then by the third year, that's when we really had the instrumentation the way I wanted it. How did you come to the use of the flugelhorns? Well, see, that, cause I wanted them because number one, uh, it's a bigger bore instrument. So when you're down in low range, if you play, Loud, you get a edgy sound. When you get down low below G uh, on the staff, and it starts getting blatty if you play loud. Where the flugelhorn can play in a lower tessitura, play louder and get a more metal sound. Mm-hmm. And then also with the way Horny was writing for us, I could use it as a swing instrument. Uh, there were times when I just had them play by themselves. Other times they would double and enforce the mouthphones. And then the other time was when I wanted to do jazz and get four trombone parts, I could make them one of the four trombone parts, see? Mm. And so we were able to get a, a lot of variations of balances with them. And and then a lot of the music majors like that because they wanted to go easier on the chops. And we had, we had like really great players that wanted to play flugelhorn mm-hmm. instead of first or second trumpet. And, of course, I was always a, 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 a proponent of that, the best players um, are not necessarily the ones that ought to play first parts. It's people who have the highest range. And because the first trumpet part's easier than the second, third part. You ever try to memorize a third trumpet part? <laughs> you know? And well, so uh, so that was another thing where I was real careful about not putting people um, on first parts just because they were a better player, but because of range. Well, that mentality by the time I got there in the early 90s was definitely very firmly entrenched. I mean, mm-hmm. I obviously was a music major. I worked my way up to Mr. Keene's band and all that, but I was second trumpet player mm-hmm. all the way through. I just, mm-hmm. I, I was never a range guy and I didn't want to. We, our philosophy, I know within the section leaders was just that, okay, the people who can do that, who have that gift, you know, mm-hmm. great, knock yourself out. Let the, let the engineering majors do that if they yeah, can, exactly. you know, but it was never about, the normal trumpet player ego of I've all got to, I have to be on first. That yeah. Way, you know. So, was this a pretty smooth transition then, or did you get any alumni pushback? Well, the only pushback point? I got was the former director. Okay. He he was very opposed to me, and he he said a lot of things about me that weren't true before I even got there. He said I was going to change the band to become a drum corps, and and so. Um, and so at first, 
there were the uh, his supporters who were ready to trounce on me before I got there. But when they saw how successful we were, they, they changed real quick. And I won the alumni over right away the first year. Hmm. Because how do you dispute standing ovations from the audience, which they never had? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just there perform, play music for the chief. And the, the first time when the, when the band realized that we, as a separate entity within ourselves, other than the chief, the chief is just one of our things. So we, we were invited to perform at the Detroit Lions game, and, and the entertainment director was an Illinois grad. And he says, you're going to bring the chief, aren't you? I go, well, this isn't, you know, people in Detroit don't know this thing. I don't think we need the chief. We'll just do a halftime show. No, no. The chief, you know, he was from the old school. Right. That's the main thing. He said, people like it no matter where you go. I, I said, I don't think so. And he says, uh, okay, all right, we'll do it. We'll do three and one. Well, we did a, a Star Wars show. Star Wars was brand new. Mm-hmm. We did a robot routine and all this stuff and with some electronic sounds. And we get this huge standing ovation from the Detroit Lions. Mm-hmm. And then we started up the three and one and people just started walking out. <laughs> and at first the band was like, oh my God, don't they know it's the chief? You know, you got to love the chief and all. And, and then they began to realize, hey, wait a minute. That salvation was for us. <laughs> you know? And the reason people react in Illinois is because that's the way you do it. You right. know, that's the way you react to it. it it's, it's, a, it's a tradition that only means something to people who are at Illinois. Right. And you're going to see some outsider go, oh, my God, you got to see this thing. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have the same impact as somebody who's, you know, comes from within. Yeah. And, and so that was the first time. And this was my uh, second year that the band goes, hey, wait a minute. We got a great band here, you know. And, and the, the whole thing changed where the, the pride the band began to develop and the, the fact that we were now getting ovations for our halftime. And then the three and ones was just one of our great traditions that we maintain for, for the Illinois fans. But it's just like the script, Ohio. Look at people there go crazy, but, you know. Some people that are not Ohio State fans, they want to sit there and watch for four minutes. Them write out script is like you know could be the most boring thing in the world to, to somebody, sure. you know, and and so in the block ambience, well, it's just an M moving up down the field where they in Michigan they scream and yell and all that. Well, it just look like it's just an M going up down the field to, to someone. You have to march it though. I have yeah. to say, <laughs> yeah, if you have to, you appreciate that because yeah. I mean, if you've never marched that drill before, and you, everyone at a certain point has individual instructions, and you have to turn at spots that don't make any sense with the yeah, music. Right? So, yeah. as, as a director, I can definitely appreciate that yeah. on all other level. But, but yeah, if you're not aware of that, but they, you know. And so then finally, you know, after by the second year, the band realized our definition of fun now is to have a great band, not to get drunk and party. Yeah. That that's that's the the fun part now is to have a great band. So but, you start at, at U of I in seventy six and then I'm I'm seeing that the system comes out in nineteen eighty four. So the book you mean? Yeah. yeah. So so could you could you explain a little bit of the process and the inception of that? Well I was, I wanted to develop a book that could be used as a kind of a first aid kit for a first year teacher who doesn't have any knowledge about marching band. I'm in fact, you know, the band director at Wyatt Roberts at Granite City was got he had to take that band over as a choir guy, never once knew knew anything or been in a marching band. And he came to our director's workshop, Smith Warbridge, and he got my book and that's what he used, you know, 
It, about a week before band camp, that was his training. Wow. Now he's got one of the best bands in the Midwest. And so that's why I call it the system, because if you don't have, you don't really know how to teach marching steps or you don't have a, a command system, the, the, you can use all this. But if you do, then you, you can look at some of these things in the book that make it better. But if you don't have anything, it's, you got it, a command system, you know. So it started out basically as a, as a kind of a catch-all book, textbook for band directors and drum majors and people in leadership. And now it's a couple hundred more pages than it was then. So it has expanded considerably when I'm bringing some other outside experts, mm-hmm. for like for percussion and all that, to make, make it more thorough. So now it's it can be more it's more used as a textbook in colleges and and uh, and even some advanced directors buy it because of some of the stuff in it. And so each every two or three years I update it and make a new run. And, and so the, you know the the book has become a little more diversified. So and there's a lot of stuff about leadership in there now. And there are some directors that just use the leadership thing. So we have a. a auditions for drum majors and all that and we have sheets audition sheets and all that and so now we have a website so when you buy the book you can go to the website and register and get free pdf files if you want to print something out uh for like audition sheets things like that or if i update the book you know they can get the updates which they're getting ready to do now and um so it it, it it's just sort of w- went through a metamorphosis of just a, a basic survival kit to something that's that's more thorough now for mm. marching band. And by the way, we seem to be talking primarily about the marching band. Uh, my my first love was always the symphonic band. Sure, and and that's why I kind of wanted to lead in. And, with and that's that why I went question. to Illinois yeah. because an opportunity because the second band in Illinois was an amazing group. Yeah, and um. I that's 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 the reason I never left Illinois for anything else. I, you know, to become a director of band somewhere else. Where why you know how can I get anything better? And I got right here. I don't care about my title. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the um, the highlights with your your symphonic band at uh, Illinois? Oh, there's so many because you know they would <laughs> they would bring in guest conductors and stuff and they would guess you know with uh, both bands. Yeah, I think some of it was when we did we premiere some things. You know. Yeah. And we and we played some stuff that like was really off the wall. We did a thing called "It Takes a Village" that we featured a percussion doing all kinds of different stuff, and it was just totally w- way different than anything anybody had ever done. And uh, we did another thing where we started out scattered all in the hall playing this aleatoric thing, and little by little, gradually coming on the stage and then busting into this big fanfare. It was just some things like that we did. That uh, I think we were the first one to do that ghost train thing, other than the premiere of it, okay. and it, nothing like that had been done. And I got a copy of it, and we played it like a week after Tom Leslie did it at UNOV. Um, and so it's, it's a combination of a lot of things, you know. And and um, I got uh, I started out. I came and had the third band when I came, which is also a great band. Guy Duker had the second band. And, he says, well, I want you to have a second band. I said, I'm happy with the third band. Mm-hmm. He says, no, I want you to have a second band. So then took over the second band. And um, then when Jim Colonel came, they, he, they, he had the second band. I had to back, back to third band. So I kind of went back and forth. Sure.
And a party crasher. <laughs> oh, hey, bud. Hey. How's it going? Hello, how are you? Good, how's it going? Good. Scott, what? how you doing? That's a blast from the past. Yeah, no kidding. What is, what is going on here? Oh, we're doing a podcast. He has a radio station that, that, that does uh, brought podcasts of band records. We're interviewing him for a job. from the, no. the <laughs> So he said when he found out you were coming, he go, well, let's get you while you're here. Yeah, I am Don Stinson. Cody Burkle, nice good to meet you. Yeah. So Cody was... Assistant director bands during my time. Okay. All, that. all right. I got pictures of you in your March Carolina outfit in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. The one in the. We got it. The. Um, oh, that's another thing we need to mention. We were the first American college band to march St. Pat's Parade. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. The. Uh, I was there. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were the first. <laughs> yeah. So we were invited uh, to be featured as the lead band. We're the last band in Prada for the um, um, St. Patrick's Parade in Ireland. And the Irish Tourist Board subsidized our trip to get us. And we took 300, you know, the first year. And um, so we got, like, the best hotels and everything uh, for a lot less money. And and um, so the band's been there several times since. And But they, the Irish Tourist Board said that we see that as a new marketing, you know, the college bands in America. And um, I think the next year there's like nine college bands that end up going, you know, because they're all calling me. What's it like? It was a perfect place to take college kids. We Everybody had – it was a great combination of fun and performing. And, and um, we we've – we we brought up the we were the last band in the parade and everybody followed us you know and so we when we got to the end of the parade we had a huge crowd and we did all of our typical crazy stuff you know and um, I think that was a, a a high point because it was another first yeah you know we were the first band to use electronic music first band to make a CD that you know of any band of any band period. Um, uh, we had our CD go up into space with Apollo 13 or whatever it was, you know. Um, they were playing our music uh, in space. Wasn't and, it one of the commanders of yeah. the... Because I was in the band at Tanner. the time, and we, we recorded it. We recorded, like, Oski and said hello to him or something. Yeah, right? they said, that was John Tanner from Danville. He was right. an astronaut. And uh, and the other uh, engineers in there were from Purdue, so they weren't digging it too much, you know, <laughs> hearing all the Illinois music. So... The yeah that that Irish you know the trip to Ireland was a big deal, the you know the biggest bands over there in the parade were like forty eight and here we come like three hundred. Of course I mar- I made them six wide and stretch it out like three blocks and people were like freaking out. It's like they couldn't believe it. So there's a lot of firsts with your career and, and mm-hmm. did you seek to be innovative or is this just just kind of no I and then I didn't say oh I need to do this because nobody sure. else has done it you know it, 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 I just. I tended to use do a lot of gimmicks with a marching band and end up finding out no one had done it. And well, I did that even at St. Joe College. I had a skydiver come in with a game ball, you know, to, and he landed. And I got – it was in the national news hit it. And then that next year, the Rice Bowl in Chicago thought they would try it. And he did. It was a night show, and they landed in the wrong game. Oh. <laughs> these people, these, these people were without. They were being invaded by Russians, you know. And so, and so we did a lot. Of, we did a lot of stuff. So you, we were talking um, a little bit before uh, Professor Birdwell got here about your uh, your band at U of I. Could you tell us what your preparation was for each rehearsal? Well. Um, 
but with my concert band and my marching band, I, I always treat every rehearsal like if I had to do the show tonight, what would I do now? Okay. And it's like when I did my symphonic band the same way. We got to do the concert tonight, and I got an hour and a half to get ready for it. And then so little, you start with the big things, and you narrow down a little. So I tried to get stuff taught as fast as possible, even if it was not very good. So And then from that point, whatever time you had remaining, you would gradually get more and more refined. And as opposed to the theory of perfecting things as you go. Well, that works for, you know, maybe bands that do one show all year long. But when you cut, sometimes you got one week to learn a whole new show. You got, the band used to call it one week shows and they spelled it W-E-A-K. <laughs> it's like, we have a one week show coming up. <laughs> well, there were definitely levels of difficulty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Control, it was a one and you know, with some of the most simple ones got the biggest response, you yeah. know? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a... a Things like that, I think, are very important for directors to realize. Yeah. That well, you know, we didn't have YouTube in those days, and we did a lot of stuff that now is getting a lot of attention, you know, on YouTube, you know, animated stuff. I mean, we had two cannons play 1812 with smoke coming out and exploding, you know, and, and we had a spaceship going down the field with that smoke coming out. And, you know, that stuff, no, that's, that's hot stuff now. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say it because yeah, I hear those things come through, and I'm like, I remember doing this. And yeah. I remember seeing yeah. of the marching Illini from the 30s and 40s, even yeah. some of those animated things. Yeah, right. I'm. Uh, I was told by uh, one of your other alums to ask you about some of your famous marching Illini stories. Oh. <laughs> yes, he said you have some that'll be okay for uh, for. Uh, Not too many. Uh, yes, some. <laughs> <laughs> this is a God. There's show, so many. Right? Well, there's so many. I one of the clean ones I tell <laughs> is it, the thing is was interesting about the marching band. The, even though you had 360 people, they almost became like an individual, and they could actually communicate through osmosis. It's amazing because, and they would be like all their minds would be thinking they're doing the same thing. We're playing. Uh, Purdue on national TV, a ABC Wide World Sports. Ned Stucco was a producer of ABC Wide Sports, and his dad had been a high school banditer. And and so he he li- loved our band, you know. But this was when they stopped showing bands, you know, and they never he didn't get on TV. And so he was coming to our rehearsals, and I, you know, we got to be friends. And I said, why why don't why don't they show the bands anymore? He goes, well, it's money. You know, it, 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 I said, is it because the bands are bad? He said, no, it's because, you know, we get a million dollars a minute now. The only way you're going to get on is someone pay for that time. And, uh, and he says, but I'll tell you what, at pregame, after the Purdue band gets done with their shows, they had all the time, you hold two minutes and I'll get you guys on, okay? Like, okay, cool. And so um, we get to the game and Purdue band gets done and I'm waiting two minutes and this, this gal who's got, you know, work with ABC and starts screaming at me, go, 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 go. And I, and I say things like, uh, oh, Ned Steckle told me to hold two minutes. You can't hold two minutes. It's going to put the national anthem in the wrong place. We managed to argue for two minutes, see. <laughs> so, and so she says, you must cut two minutes out of the pregame show. And I said, no problem. So I got up in the ladder and I went, I held up two fingers, the, the band, and then like cut. Chris, they didn't know what the hell that was all about. <laughs> so we went ahead and did our show. And when it was over, she came over and says, well, I don't know how you did it, but thank you. 
<laughs> my brother was drumming. He said, what was that two thing you're holding up? I go, don't ask you. <laughs> she yeah. thought I actually cut two minutes. <laughs> Lovely. So you talked about how the band would be just of this one mindset. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, as you experience it, and it's hard to even describe how that happens, but it just does. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I mean... To me, during my time, and I and I say this a lot, the Marching Illini, to me, was still the greatest overall organization I've, I've ever been a, a part of. Well, think about it. You've got, first of all, the diversity. Mm-hmm. Politics doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. How much money your parents have. Everybody's equal. And, and you got every major representative, every yeah. age representative, all working to share a common goal. And as it goes to show you, there is such thing as peace and tranquility mm-hmm. in large groups of people when you have a common goal. And you focus on achieving that common goal. We never talked about politics. We never talked, even the controversy with Chief, we never, it was a subject I wouldn't allow because it, that's when you start taking sides. Right. And you start having differences of opinion. And so the, the whole idea then was because you are all equal. It doesn't matter if you're playing first, second, or third trumpet. Every part's important. And the mere fact you're on the field and you're in that band, you, each individual contributes to the total success of the group. The better the individual performs, the better the ensemble. And and so I think that's where the exhilaration comes from because I am important. I'm part of this. And, and you experience the success. And when you have the feeling of success, it causes you to motivate yourself. And so rather than try to motivate you, we try to create an environment where you motivate yourself as a result of the experience you're having in the group. And I think that's the biggest mistake teachers make. They're too focused on trying to motivate people, and and you can't. And people have to motivate themselves and focus on what causes somebody to be motivated rather than motivating someone. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And that's not, I mean, that's by design. That's not an accident. That leads me to the next thing that I want to talk to you about. You mentioned your book, The System, Mm -hmm. and... If you've spent any time in the Smith Walbridge camps or in, in your bands and all that, that's a part of the philosophy that you would always talk to about system yeah. plus spirit equals success. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit of our listeners. About well, it's, that. you know, I'm not into axioms and, and quotes and, and all that. But for me, it's, it's, it's always been my guiding light because it over, overly simplifies the whole process, system being as a way of doing things. And spirit is the way that the people that you're demonstrating the system to react to it. And so if you have a good system, which is what the director provides, the teacher, and that's a way of doing things, and it's effective, then the students react to it in a positive way, and the, the result is success. And the success has the byproducts we all want, like good attitudes, showing up, working hard, enjoying it and so whereas i think uh, so many teachers are more interested in trying to work to achieve success instead of what causes success which is the process so the process is what causes the result and and that's why it's the combination of the system and how the students react to it and if both of those attributes are are effective then you're going to be successful and the success builds momentum you know and that's why we started with something as simple as all of you clap your hands together one time to, to, to get the concept in the simplest form of how it works. 
that clapping your hand is not a hard thing to do, but to get 200, 350 people clap your hand at the same time is. And so everything we do is to try to get as close to perfection as possible. And it's by the intensity of the individual contribution or the spirit part of it. It's, I don't When I say spirit, I don't mean like cheerleading and stuff type thing. I'm talking about what, you know, what comes from inside of you when you react to this, the, the, what I call the system. So that's why, you know, the, that's why you have coaches who, um, all different styles that are successful because the misconception is that a leader is somebody who tells other people what to do. And that's far as saying the truth, you know, a leader is someone who has the ability to change the way people think and or act. And if you don't have expertise, skills, and knowledge in your medium, then you're not going to be successful. But the, the other component that all leaders have in common is the ability to transfer that to other people. And so that's what we don't teach in the colleges. So they go. that's why you have great musicians with crappy bands, you know, because they, they've got all this knowledge and skill, but they know how to transfer it. They can pick up trumpet and play, you know, play high trumpet concerto and, and – but they can't teach band out of phrase or articulate because you're dealing with the transferring process. That's why you have great coaches. Yeah. And that some are mean and nasty and there's, and others are, you know, easygoing and calm and, but they're both successful because those two components are, are in common with each other. What are some other things that you can think of today as you watch and listen to? Uh, bands that maybe band directors need to, to work on or focus on more? Well, I think it goes back to what I told you before. If you don't have the music in your head, how are you going to teach it? I mean, I can sing Mary Had a Lamb for you if I sing a wrong note. You'll know it because you know the tune. Yeah. You know? But if if, if you didn't know the tune, you, you may not know that I sang a wrong note. And so if you're, if you're working with an ensemble and you don't know the music – and you don't have it in your head, how are you going to get them to reproduce the right thing based on? And so I think most band directors are not prepared. They're simply, you know, beating time. And when it says it's this is the tempo and this is the rhythm and all that, and, and that without any no idea at all about the total concept of that music. And, and so every director has a different way of getting it. Like I said, that either through gestures or talking or both. And, so, but when, when you don't even know what it is you're trying to achieve, where you're just, you know, following like a machine, the score, then those are the ensembles that never achieve the high level of performance. And this is with all due respect to every other band director, but my band director would talk about first time, it was 1969 or 1970 when U of I got a new band director. He drove out three hours and watched dr harry beegen's rehearsal mm -hmm. or i'm sorry concert and said he just leaned forward and just had not heard a band sound like that before yeah. and and i know we kind of started off talking a little bit about we're well, talking you know, about the hunger and knowledge which yeah. is i think lacking nowadays um yeah every every person wants to um improve himself maturation is a lifetime process yeah. and how else are you going to learn unless you have models and you have get yourself situations where you have an opportunity to grow and learn and hear examples. That's why there's so many people come to the Midwest Band Clinic, Midwest Band Clinic, you know. But the question is, once you hear a great band, what did you learn from it? Are you going to be able to inst institute some of the things you learned, what you heard? How did that band get that sound? Yeah. 
you know, I, w- I was fascinated, like I told you, with the marching band, I was fascinated with Ohio State. How did they get that? Not that I want to sound like them, but how did they get there where mm-hmm. they are? And, and so the, 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 I, you know, the, the knowledge, hunger of knowledge is something that, that instills all of us to get better at what we do, you know, at, over a lifetime. Yeah. And the more knowledge and experience you gain, the harder it is to find things that, are you know inspirational to you and you learn from and and so that that's one of the reasons why uh, people who don't continue to grow uh, get mired in mediocrity their whole life and the people who excel is a very small percentage of our society hmm. well i don't want to ignore dr birdwell here how uh how did Dr. Birdwell and you? Well, he came to Illinois, you know, as a, an assistant director. And, and the reason I liked him is because he played golf and he played racquetball. And I found out later he was also a good musician, a good conductor, too. So, but we, I don't know, we just hit it off. We're almost like brothers, you know, we're just very good friends. And when you, when you teach with colleagues you like and you want to be around, have fun, I mean, we hung together. Yeah. You know, we did stuff together. And, and it, it makes the, the teaching process so much more enjoyable. Is that all true? Yeah, I mean, we were pretty tight. I mean, there, there were so many. Phew, it was, uh, it was, uh, I was still pretty green. And when I landed at the U of I, I had been teaching two previous years at a real small school, college up in Michigan. And so I went from small and isolated to really big and uh, one of the leading programs in the country. And so I was pretty green when I got there, but one thing that I think we did immediately was just what Gary said. It was uh, Jim Keene, Gary, and myself. And the three of us kind of connected, you know, in a lot of ways that were really cool. And uh, we all had sort of the fundamental passion for being, for band, you know, just for being great, uh, having pride in being part of a great program and the excitement that was there in the Illinois band program at the time. And so, I mean, I work with Gary every day, and I work with Jim every. I was I was the one in the middle office, and so, you know, I felt yeah. like I felt like the tennis in a tennis uh, the tennis net in a tennis match. You know, and I had to sit there, and Keen would walk right by and go into Gary's office. Then Gary would walk by and go to Keen's office, and every once in a while they'd stop and yell at me. You know? <laughs> but um, but I really it was you know the three of us kind of connected you know like Gary and I would go play racquetball every day for lunch you know that was our lunch break we'd go play racquetball come back and teach in the morning or afternoon but play racquetball just to get out of the office and then come back for marching rehearsals and then uh, and Jim and I would and all Gary we'd you know play golf or do whatever we had our outlets and so I think the outlets that we mm-hmm. could, the time that we could spend outside of the office helped make us stronger in the office ultimately right. and so. Um, there were a lot of challenges in a lot of different ways, but we worked together to overcome those challenges. But as I look back, I think just the pure joy in being at Illinois, working with the great students and working with great colleagues and the tradition and legacy of the Illinois band program, the five years I was there, every year for me became more and more meaningful. And when I left, I took that with me and always have. So it was tremendous. My career... Where I am today, I would not be without the five years I spent working at Illinois and learning from the one and only Gary Smith. <laughs> yeah. So, and but the other thing is the, the whole idea of sharing and working together, and it, it's not all about you; it's all about the total process, everybody involved. And if you're into it just for personal recognition and gain and fame and all that, the students pick up on that real quick. Sure, sure. 
And and Cody was not. He didn't have this big ego. He wouldn't have fit in, you know, with our scheme of things. That's why it was comfortable for him because you know it was, it was not a big ego thing. So Scott, what was the student perspective? Well, I mean, you could definitely tell uh, at the spot here. But, uh, no, I mean, it, the one thing that I think that was very clear watching the three of you is that you were definitely philosophically on the same page. I mean, there was definitely never conflicting messages in terms of just whether it was musical or whether just how to how to run a band program and that is in leadership and everything else. And, and, that, and that came through, I think, that, that you were that you are all friends that way as well, too, you know, so, I mean, the one thing I think just in terms of the Illinois bands in general, that was just mind-blowing to me when it, from that first marching Illini rehearsal, and if you come in, I mean, essentially that marching band rehearsal, the first taste of the Illinois bands was just, everything was on a whole different level, you know, and everyone was, you know, both the students and the directors and everyone else was dedicated to doing the best job humanly possible and were there were never any egos there was never any you know weird hazing or anything else now that you just you automatic from the day that you walked in the room what the goal was and what it was all about and you didn't even have to be told you just knew by sitting down mm-hmm. and that was a i think that was an environment that the three of you created mm-hmm. and the environment was a combination of things you know it was the directors and we worked really hard and i just i was there to help gary in every way i could and same thing with me and jim keen i was just there to to help but the environment of the directors and the people i mean the people went beyond just three directors i mean there was harvey herman yeah now that's yeah. an interesting story right yeah. and then eldon oyen mm-hmm. and oh, ruth the secretary i mean yeah. It was an interesting dynamic, and it was pretty. It was amazing at times in terms of hilarious, uh, being fun and being. Uh, but it was just this um, centricity that just kind of kept it going. And then, of course, Bev. So, uh, which she kind of kept everything in in line because uh, Gary's wife was is a remarkable person. And well, so we just, we just celebrate our fifty third anniversary, and I said, wow. and people ask me. How did it last that long? I says, I just do what I'm told. <laughs> Sorry. No. I said, when I come home, I don't want to be in charge of anything. But, but the dynamic of all the people and the students were the, the, the work ethic of, and Jim Keene would say this, you know, the students who come to U of I just have that good Midwestern work yeah. ethic, you know. Um, that was really powerful, and they wanted to work hard. Well, the, the, you know, you hit on something that just, when I first came to Illinois, I the the Illinois kids are are just homespun Midwestern kids, yet they're academically very sophisticated, just mm-hmm. as much as the you know the Eastern schools, the Harvards and Yales. I mean, intellectually they're on that level, but when you're around them, they're just homespun kids. They're not this you know sophisticated kind of a, a aristocratic kind of a, 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 a culture, and and so I never realized that until we got into complex things and and how they would perceive things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that you know, was only – and I told the band, I said, you know what? I wouldn't even got, been able to get into this school. And so it's ironic that I'm teaching at a place <laughs> where, the, where everybody's smarter than me. But I've got experience and you don't, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I think then the, there's also all that combined with the tradition, you know, yeah. the, the history of – a. A. Harding and then Hinesley and Beach and, and then the old band building, you know, yeah. the, the the facilities, even though they weren't state of the art, they're actually pretty good. But they were old 
but there's so much history in the band building with the museums and the archives and and then you know memorial or what memorial stadium and the armory and just all that it, it just created an incredible mm-hmm. environment that was uh pretty special well, you, you could almost feel the the uh spirit of a harding walking around in the halls yeah in my first year it came his office was still intact and i would go in at night and read all his mail because you know they didn't have you know email in those days but they wrote letters you know and they read letters you know from you know from granger writing letters to harding and things uh, and i would just go through and read all his mail you know because he he was the number one inspiration in the band world you know well, my wife is a native of Illinois and grew up. She ended up to a, going to a small school in Tennessee, but uh, she even used to tell me about her memories of University of Illinois and the band and all that. So it's just. Well, I think that was another thing also, too, that the three of you did a great job of instilling in us. I mean, we you definitely, within weeks, knew the history you know of the of the Illinois band program and all that, and you instilled in us that we ha- we all of us had a responsibility to maintain that and to keep mm-hmm. that going. And I mean, I drunk the Kool Aid. I mean, I still feel like now I've got a responsibility as mm-hmm. an Illinois grad to to do mm-hmm. good work in the field that right. way. So I mean, it, it, that's the thing that I think being a part of a historic program. Um, mm-hmm. That's a benefit that you can't get anywhere else. That's, That's why right. I enjoyed teaching in Joliet and feeding into Don's program here and all that because it's it's a that's something you can't get everywhere. But I thought that's another th- thing. It's about the mm-hmm. Illinois program and what you guys did that was that was important. Yeah, and as I continue into this profession, you know, there there are a few directors, and especially you know marching band directors around the country who continue to be inspirational and. Uh, so important in the lives of other former students, alumni, band directors, even though they've retired and moved on uh, and are enjoying their careers in different ways. And Gary Smith is, real, without question, uh, one of the all-time great, not only university marching band directors, but he's touched the lives of so many, countless marching alumni, alumni and university of band alumni, and the fact that he's here today talking to us just like it was 20, 30 years ago is pretty cool. You know, it's mm-hmm. really something. So, <laughs> Well, just to kind of close up here, would you mind uh, just some nuts and bolts that I think could help some other band directors out there maybe elaborate a little bit on, on student leadership? Yes. Well, yeah, that's one of my specialties mm-hmm. because in my mission is to dispel the myths about leadership. And I never read any books about leadership, and I never held hands and sang kumbaya or swang from vines or fell backwards, someone catch me. I, I, those things <laughs> never, I never saw a, a, a correlation between that and leadership skills. And and so the whole idea is, is pretty simple in my mind. The leader, as I, I, my definition I mentioned earlier, is very fundamental. Someone who has the ability to change the way people act or and or think, and you have to become qualified to do that. And you so if you don't have the knowledge and skills, what are you going to do? you know? How are you going to lead anything? And so I think a lot of the high school band directors give their students these titles, and as you know, the title means nothing. You know how many people have you known with a title that weren't very good leaders? And vice versa, how many times you known someone that was a great leader and they didn't even have a title? 
and and so that's the other myth and so in the a lot of the bandwagers don't train their students of exactly what role they should take and what their responsibilities are and with student leaders you don't want to go beyond the role that's defined by the director I, I, I personally think they should never, student leaders should never be given the responsibility that involves interpreting rules or disciplining other students. They should have a specific role of running a music sectional or taking attendance or, you know, the giving private help to students struggling with music and so forth. And uh, that chapter in my book lists all the kinds of things that student leaders should do and should avoid doing because uh, and, and, of course, the whole thing deals in order to have influence over people, you've got to be respected. So then it's important student leaders discover what are the things that cause people to respect you. Because if they respect you, then you're more likely to be influential in, in working with them. And the, the things that cause people to be respected is how you treat people, you know, and, and how you basically uh, – use your your ability to give other people benefit from it rather than trying to be a big shot you know who's in bossing other people around and so and it so it involves doing the dirty work and things that behind the scenes has nothing to do with running a rehearsal or something you know things like lining the football field you know putting out water setting up you know things that done behind the scene has an effect on the effectiveness of the band even though it's not visible and so most of the section leaders, student section leaders, uh, want to do things that are visible. They get recognition for that elevates them and so forth, rather than what what are the nitty gritty things that need to be done to help the band get better, rather than what 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 can I do to make myself look important. And and so as I observe student leaders, you know the ones who boss people around and try to inflict their authority over the people are the least effective because they're not respected. Yeah. And so that's it. it I think bandwreckers need to understand there's a difference between, you know, an adult leader and a student leader. So you have to prepare them to do effective at their age level, you know, and, and, and actually age has nothing to do with respect. Uh, you know, if I, if I want to become a, a better tennis player, uh, and, and I got a 16 year old kid in the band that's a national champion and I, I want him to teach me how to play tennis. I don't care. He's 16. He's got knowledge. He's got expertise. So teach me how to play tennis. So age has nothing to do with it. And and so that's why, you know, the whole concept of you have to be older or whatever has nothing to do with it. It has to do with your competence and and whether you are, you are uh, able to uh, be qualified to take on the responsibilities that are assigned to you. So that, that's why that the... That's why we have the camps in the summer because a lot of directors don't have time to train their kids, you know. So we train them for you, and um, and and give them give them the, the things they should be doing as student leaders. Great. Well, thank you for your time here today. We sure. appreciate uh, you letting us into your hotel. Well, it was nice to have Cody drop in, <laughs> but we didn't mention that Cody's a director of bands at yeah. University of Kentucky now and has had a, a, a stunning career. And his, his, his ensembles at Kentucky are some of the best in the country. And it makes us feel proud that somehow he had, was influenced by the experience with us. And I think the greatest reward a teacher can get is to see their students succeed. Because yeah. there's certainly not going to be monetary rewards. 
Well, I can't let this end without thanking the both of you for yeah. what you brought to me personally as a student and just to the band world in general. So thanks for sitting down with us. Well, my pleasure, and that's that's why we that's why we're in the teaching profession. Absolutely.